next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. We didn't even have a name for it. And then we started getting people signing up from Brazil, Southeast Asia, from Europe, South Africa. And we're just like, okay, this is working. I was just itching at coming back and starting something. I just said, look, you've had enough fun here in Australia. Time to go back and see if you can do something. series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, Diawa Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month, and you want to scale to the next level, let's have a chat. Go to wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us. That is W-E-D-O-G-R-O-W-T-H dot C-O. Wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us today. My guest today is Trevor Kimenye. He's the founder and CEO of Onge. Onge provides SMEs with an AI-powered customer relationship management system for customer care, self-service, and handling sales inquiries while reducing the cost of service through automation. Onge is based in Kenya. I met Trevor in Cape Town, South Africa at a conference, and I found him to be an intelligent, friendly, and warm person. We had a chat about why he started his business, what he was doing before. He used to run a digital marketing agency in Kenya. Trevor is building one of the important businesses in Africa that is using artificial intelligence to do customer relationship management. It's an infrastructure play business that I'm quite interested in. So Trevor, welcome to the show. Ah, Thank you very much. Really glad to be here. It's so great to see you and to get you to the show. I met you a few days ago uh, at the Excel Africa 
uh, accelerator program and, and the summit and your product stand out. I really like it because I can connect to it basically and I think it can work everywhere. Onger, um, and you can explain more about this, Onger is a product that enables businesses to do customer service better. Yes. So tell me more about it. So you find like uh, these days you talk to your bank or to a telco, you could talk to them on Twitter or on Facebook uh, and on their end it's a bit hard for them to figure out whether it's the same customer um, and they're trying to use the same tools that we're using as consumers uh, but that doesn't really scale well for them. So what Onger does is it aggregates all this communication into a single platform and then we use artificial intelligence to automate a lot of the repeat inquiries that businesses get and that just frees up the customer service reps to handle the more complex inquiries that um that they might be facing. So let's go through how it works. I'm a customer and I make a complaint on Twitter about uh, a product or a service. And then I send an email as well. And because I've not received the email and I went on Twitter and I went on Facebook, how does Onge help the business to be able to know that I'm the same person that is shouting on Twitter and talking on an email? So usually for the first time you're communicating to them on a social channel, um, the first thing is to obviously take it to a private uh, channel. So it will be a DM or an inbox. And then from there, they can do their basic KYC checks and they only have to do that once per channel. Um, a lot of the businesses now, let's say if it was a bank, they would have your email and they would have your phone number. So once they get one of those two from any of those channels, uh, we basically establish your identity and they only ever have to do that once. But why do they need Onget to do that? Um, they need that because uh, if you do that on your phone or any other platform, you lose that context. So if somebody then interacts with you in a different app, uh, you have to ask that information. The first time there's usually that hurdle, but the second and third time um, you can't keep asking for that information over and over again so from our end we merge all those identities as soon as that KYC check has been done we merge all those identities into one and then you can actually have a cross-channel communication so you can say hey you guys I sent you that email yesterday and you haven't responded and as, as long as the business knows you're the same person they can just continue that thread and they can see the previous conversation that you had yeah. So it's basically the way I interpret Onger is this. Uh, customer services cannot be controlled by the business. The way customers want to engage with you can no longer be controlled. In the past, you just give them a phone number and that's the only phone number they can use to reach you. They cannot reach you any other way. With email, you give them that channel as well. That's the only email they can use to reach you. They cannot reach you any other way. But the beauty of social media is that it enables you to reach customers through different channels. But then there's a flip side to that. It means customers can also shout and make noise and talk to you you and harass you through a different channel. What Onget does is to enable you to aggregate those channels into one place where you can track and understand and continue conversation with them as if you're controlling it in a way that is easily manageable for you. That's what Onget does. Uh, yes. So, and it's very critical because uh, customer service and engagement went from being a one-to-one -one thing to really diversified, especially on social media. Uh, we have cases in Kenya where a bank actually almost collapsed because of rumors that happened on social media. So people went onto Twitter saying, oh, I think this bank is going to close. Let's all go and get our money. Uh, and there was an actual bank run on the bank and, and the wow. central bank had to intervene. And it was just purely because of poorly managed communication 
particularly on social. So somebody can go to Twitter and say something and then everyone gets into a panic and they start sending you all this communication saying, hey, are you guys really closing? What time What time are the branches closing? And if you don't respond and manage and contain that, it can actually have very, very drastic consequences. And how long get up have that? Yeah, for that, the first thing would be for them to see the volume and actually being able to track what's going on. Um, so tapping into Facebook and Twitter would be able to tell them, or how many people are having these kind of conversations, and then also providing them a really fast and efficient channel, primarily through automation. So if anybody's messaging you saying, hey, I've just had this rumor, you can respond to them with some official communication uh, from the bank saying, hey, this is not true. Your funds are safe. Uh, don't panic. Basically, what happened to these guys is they had no way to communicate with all these people. They went and, you know, released a release or press conference but it wasn't been done in the channel where these rumors had started so if they had been using on gear we would definitely have been able to manage and help them contain and the engage responses. properly yes yeah. let's go back a bit to how you started all of this um i wanted to start out by actually going step by step backwards what was the aha moment for you to do were you in a customer service do you have a customer service problem or you just say okay i'm a technologist i'm, I'm a software engineer and i can use technology to solve that yeah so we were actually in a bank at the time with my co-founder you're working in a bank no we were the bank was our client so basically we had started an agency called sprout we called it sprout because we had all these crazy ideas that we thought we could incubate and build products and businesses what was the agency about so it was a digital marketing agency uh, but we really focused on four things uh, we always used to say that our ideas are the intersection of design because everything needs to look good technology because that that's the magical thing. Business, because you want to make money. And culture, because people only relate to things that are relevant to them. So that we were just working on ideas at what that intersection. And we'd done a few projects that had failed spectacularly and some that were quite successful. And we just managed to get this bank to have us in as their digital think tank. So they were basically paying us to come in for two hours every month to just do brainstorming with them and coming up with ideas. And on this particular day, we had nothing. And we were all staring around at the room and then you were paid to come and think and talk and then you got there there was no idea yeah because you know you'd been pitching things time and time again and, and some of them would be accepted some would be rejected it was just an off day for us and there was really low energy in the room but I just happened to look up and notice that everybody was on their phone and like yeah everyone's just you know there was just an awkward silence in the room and people on their phone and they were checking their whatsapp and, and things like that and I'm like wait this is what people do every day we're always on our phones um what if we could find a way to help businesses communicate with their customers on the platforms that they use that they use the most so they were like yeah 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 go back and flesh that out let's see if there's something there so we went back to the office and then you know we we're just like us what were you guys doing it was like yeah i was just you know, i was checking my whatsapp <laughs> You know, and then we're like, oh, what if we could find a way for the business to be able to communicate with their customers on WhatsApp? So we're like, okay, we start looking into it. There's no API from WhatsApp, uh, but we're like, ah, I think we can hack something together. So we ended up hacking together this very basic dashboard. Um, and I still remember showing it to my co-founder, Charles, and he was like, I don't get it. What does this do? And I'm like, I send a WhatsApp message from my phone and you see it on the computer. And he's like, yeah, so what's so cool about that? I'm like, that means that... On the computer, you can have 10 people. We can have the entire contact center communicating with their customers on WhatsApp. So it's not just me talking to another individual. I could be talking to, to Lily, Jen, 
in a contact center. Yeah, but how is that different from WhatsApp on the computer? So I've got a WhatsApp app on my computer. So this was in end of 2014. Right. Way before WhatsApp did that. So like right now, it's so obvious. Huh? Uh, and and it's still like a bit of a limitation because you can only have it on one computer. Yes. When you think about a whole contact center where you've got 10 people and you want them to have the same identity. So you want all the contact centers to have the same identity. That's the business identity. Yeah. So how it works is that the contact center person can be interacting with the customer and another contact center person, the same business WhatsApp number, yeah. interacting with another customer simultaneously. Yes. That's it, what you built. Yeah. And uh, so we went back to the client and they got it. They were like, this makes sense. So what we did was we actually took the actual contact center number, which people used to call in, and then we registered it on WhatsApp. It was a tricky process. So if you ever try to register your number on WhatsApp, it normally tries to send an SMS first. Yes. Uh, this being an, a phone number which can't receive an SMS. Oh, is it a landline? No, it was a mobile number, but then it was like a virtual mobile number. Right. So we had to like wait for the most quiet time uh, on this number, uh, which is on a weekend. And then we disabled the IVR. So when you call it, it doesn't ask you, you know, if you want to talk to a customer, press one or two. So it went straight and then we were able to get the code from WhatsApp, the six digit code. Because you can ask, you for, can them ask to, for them to call. to call. And then, so now the contact center number was registered on WhatsApp. That's real hacking. It was real, real hacking. And then we didn't do anything. Um, we just had it there like doing private testing. But uh, there's a funny feature in Android phones, which I can basically credit the existence of my company to. Um, when you're looking at the contact screen, if a number is on WhatsApp, it normally has a tiny little icon, the WhatsApp icon there on the contact screen. It's only on Android phones. So what happened was without us even telling the customers that the bank was now on WhatsApp, they would be going, they want to call the contact center and then they see this WhatsApp icon and they're like, hmm, this guy's on WhatsApp. Let me try this. Let me see if I'll get a response. So the customers themselves started communicating and saying, hey, um, I'm having this problem. My card has just been declined in this place. Ah, and then on the customer customer service side they were like hey okay because basically at that time what we were doing was all the messages they were getting we would send them a, an email digest every hour and then they would look at it they just started saying hey wait a minute a lot of customers are actually communicating to us on this channel and so they were like okay we need to start using this dashboard <laughs> and even before the whole organization had signed up to it they were basically forced to do it because people were using it people were using so it was it. a lot of pull from the customers yes and uh, they were just sending it to them and is it one person that was managing it at that point or they've installed a dashboard for all the contact center people so at that moment there was only two people because most of the contact center was just doing calls and then there were two people on social so these were the two who had it installed it's just a web-based platform so uh yeah and we had to do so many things so we did like desktop notifications so they could see whenever the messages were coming in um yeah and then we just sort of started building the product you know so the initial mvp was used by a bank yes and because they pay you to ideate for them so were they paying for it at that point no, we had no idea what it was worth. Okay, uh, we just, okay, this is an idea. Let's just use it. Yeah. But that's a good validation. If they are using it, then you know that, that you've got a business. We didn't even have a name for it. Uh, so we finally got our heads around, okay, this could make sense. I actually remember some of the initial names that I'd come up with. Uh, I'm not really good at branding and everything. So I just said, let's call it chat CRM because it's chat and then it's a CRM. And then my co-founder was like, yeah, that's like such an obvious name. But yeah, that's when we started figuring out, okay, I think this has actual legs. And then, yeah, so we decided, why don't we just do a landing page and see if anybody would sign up to this? So my co-founder went, designed the Onge 
Ongea name and logo and everything. And what's the story behind Ongea name? So, um, it's a I bit... wouldn't even let your business through that Ongea. It looks to me like something hair and stuff. But chart CRM looks cool. Yeah, I, mean, I can understand it. It says what is anything. It's chart CRM. I know. So Ongea, it's the root of the name comes from a Swahili word which means to speak. So you spell it O N G E A, which is how you pronounce Ongea. But at the time, there was a telco in Kenya that had trademarked that name for everything. I think they had a, a mobile phone tariff, which was, and they had trademarked it for a lot of classes, which would have been relevant to us, which tells you just how we were thinking of this problem at that time. We just thought this is a purely Kenyan thing. We need to come up with something that, that we're going to be able to go to market with. So my co-founder was like, okay, we can still use this, but then we can add air, like to make it sound like it's online and digital and everything. So yeah, so that's how we ended up with the name on care. Yeah. So you then went out and then you add your landing page which again, I advise everybody to do, even before you even build anything, just have a landing page, see where many people are interested and it could be coming soon. You know, if you build it, you want to get people's details and then call them up and find out more why they're interested, what is the problem and how you can build a solution for that problem. But you've built something and then you have a landing page. What happened after the landing page? So we built the landing page and then uh, decided, ah, let's do some Google ads and see if anybody's going to sign up. Um, I think we put about $100 of ads, spread them out anywhere. And then we started getting people signing up from brazil from southeast asia from europe south africa and we're just like okay this is working <laughs> so you build a solution in africa that is a global solution for anyone else so i'm still going to go back but i want to move forward a bit what has happened since then and that you launched when was this so we put up that landing page in uh, early 2015 so okay, that's about two three. years ago yeah so more than two years ago mm. and 2015 you put a landing page then you have this bank with using it so yeah. you're developing it more because you're the mvp used by them how many people sign up when you after you put a landing page immediately after i think we had uh maybe four five hundred signups 500 yeah. signups yeah that are interested or want to start using it they were interested in yeah and using it and then you don't even have pricing for it we didn't have pricing. We were now starting to think, okay, how much are we going to charge for this? We knew it would have to be a SaaS recurrent pricing model, but we didn't know how much we wanted to charge yet. Okay, so when did you then start doing the pricing? So the first pricing model that we had was uh, based on the number of contacts a business would have. Um, and we thought, let's just look for something which people would be willing to put in their credit card without too much of a hassle. Uh, and then that's where the first problem started. We couldn't get a credit card card processor that could do the payment to us in Kenya. So you couldn't get a recurrent payment. Uh, so Stripe couldn't do that for you in Kenya. Yes, they can't because they weren't able to settle the funds to a Kenyan account. We signed up and then we're told, ah, your country is not supported. So we ended up using PayPal, which worked for us to some extent. But was it recurrent as well? It wasn't uh, It wasn't recurrent in the sense that um, that they take your credit card, tokenize it, and automatically charge it. So every month we had to send an email out to people saying, hey, time for your payment. And then oh, that's so dragging. It is horrible. And you don't have like companies like Flutterwave now, which is solving that problem. There was none of those then. And so we settled on $50 a month. Then $50 a month? Yeah, which my co-founder said, let's make it 49 <laughs> And then just to make, you know, 
Yes. Yeah, and, and then, because I, I guess $50 dollars a month would be a lot for a lot of Kenyan companies. Mm. So at that point, you knew that this is not a Kenyan solution. This is everywhere. So you want to charge a subscription that is globally compatible with every other product that is doing something similar. So is your marketing outlook then different from a normal Kenya company? Were you segmenting your customers based on different places rather than just looking at Kenya? Um, so the Kenyan ones, we knew that we had to reach out to them offline anyway. I mean, this bank was paying us by check either way. <laughs> so we knew that we'd have to reach out to them uh on other platforms. We actually have a, a till number, which is like a, a mobile money where you can pay for this product. I still have the sticker for that thing right behind where I sit on my desk every day. <laughs> so it still looks a bit like it's a shop. But yeah, the pricing was really targeted to be uh, something which people could sign up for and pay all over the world without really thinking too much about it and stopping that purchasing decision. So out of the 400 or 500 people that signed up, how many of them started paying when you, when you released the pricing? So by the end of of that yeah so this was i remember by around september that's when we had most of the payment infrastructure in place we finished that year with about 200 customers 200 paying customers yeah so you're profitable from almost day one yes from year one yeah and so year one you had 200 customers because a massive problem that a lot of people yeah what what type of businesses were you seeing there were they small business small scale businesses or enterprise businesses um, they were mostly small scale and, and by small, I mean a business that's that's engaging with maybe about maybe 500 customer interactions in a month. So yeah, small, but yeah. So and then and then the verticals we saw was a lot of them that were in e-commerce, online startups, uh, financial services. The banks. Uh, the banks would tend, tend to be the bigger ones, but yeah. And what's the geography of your customer? So it's changed quite a bit. So when we started off, it was still um, mostly Kenyan, Kenyan, Sub-Saharan Africa. And they can pay $50. Yeah. That throws a lot of my pricing assumption out of the window. Because some of the time I ideate uh, product mm. for Africa, I always assume that uh, not a, lo- a lot of businesses will not pay $50. Because it's a lot of money to them. $50 is like a quarter of somebody's salary or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, so when we started, the problem was just so compelling and there wasn't anything out there that was doing this. So so we were kind of able to almost charge what I'd say is a premium. So there was no competition doing that? No, in a couple of months, people started popping up from everywhere. Yeah, so you could charge and then you could charge globally competitive pricing. Yeah. So you have 200 customers your first year and then the second year, did you grow? Yeah, so the second year was quite interesting. So at that time, we'd actually decided this is a completely different company. This is no longer our previous agency, Sprout. So we registered on Gear separately. Um, and then we thought, oh, let's, let's go and get some VC funding and we went around. Why do you need, why do you think you need VC funding? So at that point, we felt like there was a lot of things that we wanted to do. We were looking at the competition and we were a bit worried. We felt that if we just continued doing things organically, even though we were moving fast, somebody would beat us to the market. What is the market? How do you define the market? Um, We were looking at, we want to be, you know, the number one CRM for small and medium sized businesses that were doing chart CRM because there are lots of CRM yeah. out there that you can yeah. beat. So you want to be the number one place where people go to if they want to be interacting with their customers real time. Okay, mm. fine. Um, but the market is huge because you're now global. Um, so I'm trying to tease out your justification for raising money. I mean, I know raising money helps you to grow fast, but I want mm. to tease out why when you're profitable, you're growing fast, the market is really still new. And why did you want to go for external funding? Yeah, so we noticed that uh, one, I've already talked about competition and we felt we wanted to 
be the first. The second thing is there were some, uh, I'd say, bottlenecks in our business. We weren't able to close large accounts because, you know, we didn't have like salespeople. We had a very, very limited sort of marketing budget. We were lucky that, you know, there was a lot of really strong demand and we did a lot of things that were really cheap uh, for us to acquire customers. But we kind of like, you know, we were seeing, you know, it was growing 20% month on month and we're like, no, we need this to be, you know, 40, 50% month on month. And And, and because your key challenge is not the product development, but it's acquiring more users. Yes. And that's the marketing play. Okay, so what did you do next in terms of raising money? Yeah, so we went out to a lot of the funds. At that time, Nairobi was still a hot place in terms of fundraising. Uh, But we struggled to actually get a lot of people excited about the opportunity. It was a very weird play. So we weren't solving any, you know, like, basic Africa kind of infrastructure problems. It looked like it was a, a Silicon Valley kind of company being done in Nairobi. So, and, and it's very interesting because um, I assume maybe that time a lot of money coming to Kenya was, they were looking at company solving infrastructure problem as an impact. Yes. So you don't have any impact story. We didn't have you're it. Not, you're not solving problem for the people in the lower rung of the economic ladder. You're not solving problem for the poor or you're not actually having some infrastructural challenges that you're tackling that will make life easier for people that they can say okay we can't check for this guy because hmm. the impact you don't have that you're just like yeah a business problem yeah it was, it was just a business problem so that was a bit of a challenge and i guess the second thing also was around the risk so we were basing our business on a single channel which was not official in any way what channel whatsapp oh at that point it was just chat through whatsapp it was just chat through WhatsApp. which makes you highly dependent on whatsapp and if wasn't changed that goal of them your business could just go off yes okay i, I recognize that as a big challenge and a lot of companies have been bond <laughs> and some of them have successful some of the companies have built their business model around Twitter so yes, like in the yeah. early days of mm. Twitter when people, companies were building stuff on top of Twitter and some were bought by Twitter and a lot of them were killed by Twitter mm. um, but I know Buffer for example uh, someone on the early deck and they actually addressed that to say okay this is a risk we mm. built our business around communication and automating messages on Twitter I think at that point they were just only Twitter mm. they're not doing Instagram they did Facebook but it was just Twitter initially, and they addressed that problem by going multi-channel. So I get it. Um, I just want to understand how you were able to articulate that and also what you did next. Um, so we weren't able to articulate things the way Buffer did. Um, right. I mean, because we had been doing digital marketing for a long time. So we knew a lot of what had happened, especially in the Twitter ecosystem. And so we ended up just saying, okay, we'll mitigate this by adding additional channels to the offering. So the first one that we decided to do was WeChat. This was a really weird coincidence. The WeChat guys were having an event in Kenya. They had been trying to make their inroads into Africa through South Africa and NASPERS. And the CTO happened to be in Nairobi for this event. And we said, yeah, yeah, we want to integrate WeChat. So he came into our office and... He came to your office? Yes. <laughs> he came into our office and he was like, this is the API. He showed us some demo code of people who had integrated it. And we looked at it and we're like, yeah, we can do this. So we did WeChat uh, and then... And they just opened... The CTO himself was there and he gave you... He opened the door. Yeah. He, so you didn't have to go through the back to like, what's that? Yes. Yeah. CTO opened the door for you. So they WeChat. had... Yeah, their platform was open from almost day one. And their hope was we would get local companies to have official accounts on WeChat and then that would somehow drive the consumers in you know in Africa to adopt it and that was not what happened uh, we we were looking around and noticed that there were some existing uh, customer service players uh, like Zendesk who had 
at that time, I think 80,000 customers worldwide and they didn't have any of this chat. So we said, what if we can integrate a chat into one of these apps? So we looked at their developer platforms and everything. We're like, this makes sense. So we did WeChat first. So we integrated uh, WeChat so you could have your official account and then your customer service messages would be coming into Zendesk. Right. And you were able to integrate it to Zendesk that way. So that means your customers must sign up with Zendesk. Yes. So we were... But Zendesk does almost the same. Aggregate all your customer service complaints and um, customer service channel into one place so that you can interact with them. You open a ticket, mm. but it's email-based, mm. right? Yes. No, it's platform-based as well. So what value are you adding to a customer that already uses Zendesk? So at that time... And even as of right now, uh, there's still the only way to get uh, WeChat messages as tickets in Zendesk is through Onga. The Zendesk guys have an interesting philosophy where they try and make everything within Zendesk uh, work a certain way. It's called Zen for a reason. So there's very minimal, very simple. They're not willing to make some of the concessions that a chat-based platform would require. So on an email-based ticketing system, the subject is the anchor. So if I'm talking about a hotel reservation, anytime I reply to that subject, you know what I'm talking about. On chat, there isn't any subject. The thread is long mm-hmm. uh, and it could be talking about anything. So when you're looking at a ticket-based system, the way uh, you decide whether it's a new ticket or not uh, requires a lot of customizations and a lot of things, which Zendesk wasn't willing to do. Also being a, a listed company in the US, they were a bit anxious about you know going into China and Asia. And those were things which we were really happy to do. So, so we built uh, the app, uh, like the integration for Zendesk. We also did one for WhatsApp. And I remember until today, there's a thread on the Zendesk forum where their customers are asking for WhatsApp and the Zendesk says that there's no official way to do it. Uh, and then my co-founder, when one of the greatest growth hacks in our history, went there and replied on that forum and said, why don't you, you check use- out on Gear? You can actually use it. And you're not concerned that Zendesk is going to say, what is that? Let's shut it down. Let's close that loop that will allow them to do that. To do it? Nope. So they were basically just closing their eyes. They were just like, yeah. We'll allow it to happen if you make our customer happy. Yeah. And then the customers started trooping in based on that. Wow. Yeah. It's one of those, uh, it's almost like a symbiotic relationship we have with Zendesk. Uh, where have you talked to them officially and in the capacity? Yes. So we have talked to them officially. Um, they have an app store where integrators can add their platforms there. And so far, actually right now, we've gotten about 35% of our customers Customers are coming through us that Zendesk. Interesting, because so customers that are paying Zendesk anyway, I don't know what's the pricing like, but I know it's not cheap. Customers that are paying Zendesk will likely pay your $50. Mm. Or has your pricing changed since then? Oh, yeah, so it's changed a lot. Um, so so we have right now on Onger, the entry-level pricing is $29 per okay. month. Um, and that's like for two customer service agents. Um, and it goes all the way up to 119 for 10 agents. Okay. Um, and then for the Zendesk customers, we know we charge them a flat fee of $25 per month, which oh. they pay on top of their existing. And do they pay Zendesk and then Zendesk re- remit to you? Yeah, those are the best customers we have. The retention rate is very high because most of the times if they cancel, they're canceling from Zendesk as well. So it's quite, uh, and they've already been primed. Zendesk already has their credit card. Awesome. So it's a very good issue we now have with Zendesk. Zendesk now becomes your distribution channel. Are they making money from it? or they, Nope. So, it's just enabling their customer and they, they want it cheaper for them than going elsewhere. So how many customers do you have now? So right now we've got about 1,000 customers. That's uh, great. And the minimum they pay is $25. So you are one of those companies that is really profitable, I assume. We, we are almost profitable. So. What do you mean you are almost profitable? You are making like, so you have 1,000 customers, right? And let's say on average, what does customer pay on average? 
The average revenue per customer right now is about $40. So that means you're making $40,000 per month. And you're based in Africa. Yes. So you're earning almost half a million dollars a year. Yes. Why are you not profitable? It costs quite a bit to acquire customers and to build a product. Uh, Yes, being in Nairobi, we've got great talent. We have our costs are lower than other places in the world. Uh, But we are not far off break even. I think in the next three or four months, we should be. Were you hiring? How many people do you have in your staff? Uh, we're now 13. You're not even a lot. So yeah. what are you spending money on? <laughs> no, it, I say we, we're 13, but they're really good, really solid engineers and um, sales, customer service, uh, marketing guys. I mean, you look at the product, the polish levels are really, really high. Uh, we've had people tell us until they interacted with us, they did not know this was an African company. They thought it was a Silicon Valley based company. Which is what I like, actually. I, I've always advocated for businesses be Building world-class product from Africa. Um, I was having a debate with somebody about this at a conference about a uh, person was advocating to Africans to build African-based businesses, um, solving local problem, real problem, which is true. It's totally true. We need to build businesses that is not just up in the hair uh, and hop that nobody will use and is, is solving top middle-class problem. We should solve problem that is relevant to us. And I've even written a, uh, an essay around that. But also, I don't think it's either or. I think we can also have world-class uh, businesses that are solving global problems. That some of them are not even relevant to Africa, but they're solving from Africa. And so like what you are doing, uh, because I'm inspired by what the guys in India are doing. Um, there's the company I use in India when I was running my startup uh, in the UK is called VWO. And what they do is enable you to do A-B testing on your website. So you just put a code and it can change anything on your website and do A-B testing. I never knew that they are not a Silicon Valley company. Mm-hmm. And it's just the way they position themselves. It was so great. So it was one time I was reading the team's structure and they were talking about they, they went to um i think they went to uh, a place in india for uh, their team re- retreat and i was wondering what well, must cost a lot of money for these guys to fly all the way from the u.s to this place and, and i read for that it's called no they were in india the indian company <laughs> and i said what i was a big so what yeah and I know that most of their customers will not be from India. I think so. And mm. and because the way they write and the way they engage all the st- content marketing that they do is totally for customers like me in the UK or US. That's what you're doing. And I like that. And I think mm. that is a place for both hand mm. um, where you have companies building solutions for Africa, real problems, infrastructure problem, health, transport, agriculture, food scarcity, uh, and, and all those major issues that we face in Africa. Yes. But we also need people who can think bigger mm. and who can say, yes, we can build world-class solutions from Africa that people can buy. So talk to me about how you are engaging your customers, knowing that they are global, you know, because marketing is contextual, right? How are you able to understand a challenge that an Australian or a UK company is facing, customer in terms of customer service that you can then integrate to your product? Yeah, so primarily most of the customers that we actually engage with are actually either in Southeast Asia or in Africa. I mean, that's that's already 70, 80% of our customer base. In terms of understanding their challenges, uh, for those two markets, we feel one being in Kenya and Nairobi, uh, we know the challenges of those markets. Um, the end consumers are a lot similar. They're customers of our customers. So... We kind of feel that the the things that we do can translate really well across Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. For the rest of them, we're still at a point where we can actually listen to our customers. They're not that many who are interacting with us. So we're usually very open for feedback. I think uh, the best thing I could say is 
we also use on gear internally for mm-hmm. for our own customer service so yeah it really helps us manage uh, things uh, and live up to that promise that we're telling our customers so have you raised money yes so in uh, early 2016 uh we did a really small seed round um our total came to about $250,000 that you raised in your seed round because you're talking about your VC journey so did i bring anything yes in a <laughs> oh you were able to raise money after that VC yes. raise okay yes. and that was the $250,000 yes. that yeah. you raised and that enabled you to build the product out yes and had more channels Okay. And is that the only money you've raised? Uh so so far yes, that's the only we are in the process of doing a bridge round before our main raise next Why year. do you want to do a bridge round? Um so I feel we'll be ready for our series A sometime early next year. Um when we are almost, you know, like, you know, $80,000 monthly recurrent, a million dollars run rate. That seems to be the kind of metrics you need for your Series A. Yeah, if you're doing raise. a billion-dollar run rate, although there are lots of startups that are not doing that and they raise Series A, by the way. So uh, <laughs> we'll talk <yeah>. about that. <laughs> yes, yes, but but then yeah, the, and it depends on the narrative, the market, how the opportunity is. Uh, because fundraising is not science; it's mm. majorly an art more than science. Okay, mm. there's some things that you can put around it, or that you can make it to have a model, but it's majorly hard. Um, but what you said is normally the norm: one million dollar run rate. But um, everything depends on how big the opportunity is, how fast you're moving or how fast potentially going to move and what the investor perceived about you as a team. Mm. So you want to raise Series A mm-hmm. and how much would that be and what do you want to use it for? Yeah. So we want to raise $1.5 million and we want to use that primarily just to invest in more sales and marketing. We want to look at, at regional expansion at, at a low level. So trying to chase... Uh, some of the the bigger deals on the market going into Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa, a bit more in Southeast Asia as well. And so, at that point, you would have been profitable, right? So because that's key, because the key question that I will, I'm going to be asking from an investor is, okay, you having this very good revenue and your purchasing expenses should be lower because you're not e-commerce, you're not mm. selling physical product. Mm. Your SaaS product, good SaaS product, have at least 80% uh, yeah, cross margin. Cross yeah. margin. Mm. So <laughs> if you're not hiring engineers that you're paying $200,000 a year, yeah. then you should be profitable. Yeah. So I think the question is just really acquisition of customers. If you were to compare this with the B2C play, it's our acquisition costs tend to be higher, even for paid channels and things like that. But then the lifetime value seems to be a lot higher. Yes, the lifetime value is higher, but the thing with acquisition costs is is you pay them up front. And if you don't have the cash to be able to do it, then you do it slower. That's true. Yeah. So really what we would want is having more of that cash up front, acquire those customers. We've got really good retention. Um, the LTV takes care of itself. Unit economically, the business looks good. You so, just need to acquire. Yeah, we just need to acquire them. And you get to a point where I was reading somewhere, some guy was saying for a SaaS startup, once you get to $50,000 monthly recurrent, unless, you know, there's other factors uh, or you don't make really stupid decisions, your business is basically going to survive. Yes, you have you've got a flywheel effect. Yes. Uh, if you've got a $50,000 um, monthly revenue for a SaaS product, you can then make a decision and say, okay, I'm going to deliberately uh, yes, be non-profitable so that I can invest 
for more bigger market share so you're gonna hire more people hire more salespeople, uh, and then be spending like two hundred thousand dollars a month uh, <laughs> because you know that if you can do that you can get more bigger market share or you can decide to go the route of mailchimp which never raised mm. and they were revenue funded and i think there's a place for both mm. again it's just one of those appro- different approach to things um Except the market is really tough and hot and loose of people are moving so fast. A lot of SaaS products can do without mm. fundraising. Mm. They can. And, and that's not the only ideal thing, but they can do without it. Um, there's a guy called Thomas um, Tongus. I know, Tom. I read his, stuff, read his stuff a lot. <laughs> so Thomas Tongus was writing about some of the economics around SaaS, and there's one of them that stood out. That He talked about the difference between taking money monthly and you taking... Did you read that? Mm. About if you take money annually, and the impact is so disproportionately different from yes. if you're taking money monthly. Because yeah. if you take... Let's say your 1,000 customers are paying you money... Mm. Yearly. Yearly, yeah. So you're taking $480,000 yearly. It, it's like raising money. It is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you raise money every year. You're just raising $480,000 and then you can invest that in so many things. Yeah. And the impact is that when you take that money, let's, let's say 50% of them will pay at a particular time of the year in January. So let's say you get $240,000. And that means you can invest that into marketing. You can invest that into a lot of things. Then you can then get more customers that will pay $240,000 yes. yeah. by the middle of Yeah. So I think one of the differences we're seeing... Um, and and I and I read a lot about this SaaS uh, models in terms of how to how to fund such businesses. The biggest difference I see with a lot of the companies that the Tom and and those guys are looking at is they tend to just raise a bigger seed. I still think you still need about a million dollars to get this thing up and going. And that will get you to 50K a lot faster. Uh, that will give you access to bigger accounts, uh, which are happy to pay that cash. But you know, Buffer only raised $500,000 for them to get to profitability. Yeah. And the next round they raised was just for the founders to get paid. Yeah. Yeah. Buffer probably, I'd say, is a bit of an outlier. Uh, but I'd just say, I'd say as a ballpark, I think that's a decent amount of money to have a good go at, at this kind $1 of One million dollars. Yeah, one million dollars. I think the difference we've had is because we raised less, uh, we had to figure out a lot of things, uh, a lot the hard way, um, which is not bad because who knows, if I raised one million dollars, I might have wasted it. I might have said, oh, let me just spend all of this in opening an office in Nigeria and then boom, that disappeared. And then going to conferences in Las Vegas yeah. and just having posh offices in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, we've kind of had to learn the hard way, what channels work and, and getting that discipline as a business. So we feel right now we are kind of ready for this. And the way we're looking at on it's probably just going to be a one race. This, uh, I don't really see there needing to be a Series B, Series C and we okay. could still be a very compelling business. Okay, it's really a compelling business at this stage. So let's go back a bit now and you know, let's go in this step by step backwards you studied in australia you got interested in uh, in computer right from very young and your parents gave you that opportunity to do so so tell me about that journey of you working as a government uh, software developer in australia to founding your startups in in kenya yeah so uh when i finished uh, when i graduated from uni uh, in western australia i was a top student in software engineering so there was a prize that you would get and during the graduation there was some recruitment people from uh, the ministry of, of lands in western australia and they said oh you know you should come and work here and i thought oh, that's not a bad place it's a good job i'll probably be able to get my permanent residency a lot faster. is that a major attraction because i wonder if you're a top software developer why would you want to go to a ministry why not go to cisco 
go Apple, Facebook. Yeah. So I was in Western Australia in Perth, which is the most isolated city in the world. So 6,000 kilometers around it, there's nothing. And there's a lot of... Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of mining, uh, resource companies, you know, Rio Tinto, BHP. Um, there is some enterprise consulting. I actually did my internship at IBM. Um, but I wasn't... I just really wanted a job. Being a foreign student in another country, um, I felt like I was really privileged just because I could program. A lot of my friends were flipping burgers at McDonald's or, you know, or doing other jobs to make ends meet. And I'm not trying to disparage any of those jobs, but I was lucky because I had a skill. I was actually able to get a job where I was getting paid $20 an hour to write code in Java. Uh, so I felt, you know, getting um, a proper, you know, nine to five job when I'm 21 years old with health benefits and pension and all that kind of stuff and more or less a fast track to becoming an Australian resident. It sounded like a really good deal. Yeah, it looks like for a 21 year old, you said you were like two steps before you have your own parking. Yeah, yeah. So I went in, I got this. Uh, so I was there and uh, really great team. The work that we were doing there was amazing. We built an online searching tool where if you wanted to buy a piece of land in, in Western Australia, you could search online, you could get a copy of the title, copy of the survey, uh, basically do all of your due diligence without having to actually physically go to the ministry and line up. Wow. Um, there is a lot of Asian investment into Western Australia. So I remember looking at the logs for this government application, which has been used by people overseas at odd hours of the night. Um, this government department was actually revenue positive. So they never used to draw any money from the treasury. They could fund all their operations from the copies of titles and service because we used to charge like I think it was $6.50 Australian dollars for a copy of a title and such so it was a tough engineering problems but I used to feel this actually just challenging enough for you yeah and I was there I, as I said level seven uh, I needed to do a year or two then I actually had my own parking uh, which yeah but I remember on my team there was the lead architect um, and he was I think he was 40 41. Uh, in the two years, I'd gotten to the point where I'm like, and I used to joke with him, where do developers go after 40? And he's like, you'll still be here. So I'm looking, wait a minute, 17 years from now, like I'll just be making more money, but doing the same stuff. And I'm like, no, something's not right. So I just kind of felt I need to get out of this bubble, which is why I decided to move from Western Australia to the East Coast of Melbourne, where there was now more opportunity. Um, Did you move without getting a job or you moved after you got a job? I moved to go do my master. Okay. Um, and this was an interesting time because, um, so the world was going through the global financial crisis at this time. I'm a bit of a maverick. So I was quitting a secure government job. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to uni to move to a more expensive city but the interesting thing about the master's program that i was enrolling in is they required you to be working as well so it, it was something which they felt would work better if, if you're working and there was a, a good feedback between work and school so moving there i said okay fine i'll get another job so i went applied for a job at um, nec the japanese uh, multinational and um, yeah i got in they were looking for somebody who had just the skills that I had at the time. Yeah. So that's, and then I, I worked there for two years as I was doing my master's. And every year I would come back to Nairobi. And, you know, one time I come back and I see M-Pesa, mobile money, and I'm like, hmm, this looks interesting. And then I go back, I come back the next year, then I'm seeing, oh, I have, what is this? So I go check out the space. I, I mean, some of the people who were there at the time were people that I'd known uh, from years back. So I just started seeing some sort of momentum every time I would come back um because i remember the the thing was 
in the early days when I would come back during December, I used to be the one who was buying drinks, so would be eating my dollars. Mm-hmm. And then over years, it, it got to the point where I was coming back, and then my friends are the ones who were buying the drinks. I'm like, okay. Oh, so you can well. see the transition in economically for people that or your friends getting jobs in some of these startups and then having more liquidity. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I was just itching at coming back and starting something. So yeah, so one time I just said, look, you've had enough fun here in Australia. Time to go back and see if we can do something. Yeah, so I had a bit of of cash saved from my work, and yeah, so I just said, let me go back to Kenya and see if I can get into some of this startup action. So you just packed your bag, yes, and moved to Kenya, yes, and we don't have any plan of what you're going to specifically do, but you just want to be a part of what is happening there. Yes, I had no plan of what I wanted to do. I think generally I wanted to do something consumer facing um, because just before I moved back, NEC had a billing system that they had built for Telefonica and I'd been working on that, uh, the security for that and, and some of the enterprise architecture stuff, which like to be honest, I didn't really feel the direct impact on people. Obviously, it's a very important system. You know, uh, if, if there's something wrong with your bill, you'll notice. But I didn't really like I couldn't tell anybody and say, well, you know, this is a something that I worked on. Um, so I wanted to do something really consumer focused. Uh, I wanted to do like a, yeah, a nice B2C kind of thing. So when I go back to Nairobi, you know, went to the iHub, reconnected with some of my friends, pretty much signed up for every hackathon that there was. Um, so I'd go for hackathons, I'd meet up with people, see what kind of problems they're trying to solve. Um, and I remember this specific hackathon, I think it was called uh, Garage 48. So you're supposed to build a prototype within 48 hours. And so how the hackathon starts up is everybody goes and pitches an idea and then you go and stand next to, you know, a whiteboard with your idea and then basically try and convince people to come if people don't come to your idea then you go around and look for cool ideas um so my idea which i still think is great (laughs) was for a system where if people lose their id cards um they can be posted online and then you can search to see whether your id has well, been how many people lose their id card it happens a lot so okay. um so sometimes you could be at an mpesa outlet and then you because they need to check your id they forget about it or this actually used to happen if you get unfortunately if you get robbed in nairobi and they take your wallet and everything the thugs had a code where they would actually go and drop your id at a specific bus stop somewhere so like you would find a big billboard which basically had ids kept there and i was just basically like yeah let's do this we'll just find uh, a way of, of digitizing this and people could search and yeah I thought it was a cool idea <laughs> but nobody came to your nobody board. came <laughs> so you went to join someone else yes so is that I, how you met your co-founder yes that's how I met my co-founder he was pitching a different idea his idea was even crazier and nobody came <laughs> <laughs> so his idea was um so in in Kenya when somebody unfortunately dies uh, most people do they put an obituary in the newspaper and a radio ad so he thought what if we built like a, a site where people could put their obituaries there so like just, a grave site yeah grave site. Um, website yeah so na- nobody came nobody came for that nobody wants to admit <laughs> nobody wants to come to the reality that they're going to lose their loved one at one point in their life and this is not why we're here we're not supposed to talk about death we're supposed to talk about the future you're talking about death it's like having a startup for funeral services 
Yeah, but it's a big market. <laughs> Everyone's going to die. <laughs> but then nobody wants to think about that when you're talking about startups. <laughs> yeah, so so nobody came to his idea as well. Uh, uh, we ended up joining another startup team that was trying to find a way to crowdsource traffic data by installing a mobile app in cabs. And then we'll be helping the cab drivers escape traffic at the same time doing some crowdsourcing traffic data, um, which I thought was a cool idea. The team that were there, the engineers, was one guy who was really good at G- stuff, which is what my first job was about. And was, they had a really good mobile developer. My co-founder was a designer. So he's, he'd been working in an advertising company for like 15 years. He was a creative director. So he was the brains behind branding and what it would be called. And they needed a product guy, somebody who could figure out how to make money out of this, uh, but also kind of understood the tech. So that was me. I wasn't actually coding um, on this particular project. And so we we worked and we actually won the hackathon. We were actually the best. You won the hackathon? Yeah. With this, and then did with you, this idea. Then what happened afterwards, the hackathon? Oh, so we looked at the idea and we were like, okay, we need to take this somehow to market. But then my co-founder went back to his job on Monday. I tried to keep in touch with the rest of the guys, but we were not like really super motivated to work on this idea. That happens a lot in Akaton, by the way. Yeah. Uh, when people just list it's exciting during the weekend, but I think the hard work of keeping an Akaton relevant is what happens afterwards. Yeah. So I, I called up my co-founder, called Charles, and I told him, hey, Charles, let's catch up. And then he's like, yeah, come over to my office. So it turns out that he wanted to hire me as his tech counterpart in this agency. And I wanted to like get him out of the matrix and come on to the side and do some creative stuff. So we went through this weird courtship where I'm trying to pull him out. He's trying to pull me in. Like he'd take me on tours of this agency and I could see people playing Xbox and everything. And he's like, look at all this cool stuff. Is he one of the co-founders of that agency or is just... No, he was the creative director okay. there, so he was quite... Um, comfortable. With that. Yeah, he was quite comfortable there. And, and then he, you were trying to pull him to something that is unknown. Yeah. So eventually, um, we we were like, okay, let's just keep talking. Let's keep finding different things that we can work on. Um, and then we stumbled across an idea of another small middle class problem, <laughs> which was how can we come up with an... Uh, a digital TV guide. So at that time, uh, Kenya was just moving from, you know, like analog to digital TV. So there's a lot of channels. Uh, people still could only find out about TV shows on the newspaper. So we said, oh, why don't we build a really cool, simple mobile app that has all the TV guide stuff? I was like, okay, cool. So the first thing we needed to do was to find out when the programs were. So we wrote an email to all the TV stations. Only two of them gave us their, their TV guides. One was a Christian TV station <laughs> whose programming never changed. <laughs> and and then and one was another well, like one of the bigger ones so we said oh we need to find a way to get this information so we said oh why don't we just hire somebody to be super cheap yeah so we had we did our first hire and and you've incorporated a business at that point yes and he's left his agency no he was still at the agency at okay. that time so i hired um uh, this lady is called julie's great friend of mine now and her job was basically to digitize the tv guides and then people started like checking it out and then they were like oh what if you guys could write some reviews about some of the shows and asked julie do you like watching tv she's like yes so we got a tv in, in the office so and at the time there's a lot of uh, popular uh, like latino soap operas so what we would do would be basically just torrent the whole 
series and then she'd watch it before so she'd write like spoilers and stuff and it was really really engaging so a lot of people who liked it and by a lot i mean like 10,000 people monthly what <laughs> checking out this and what was the revenue model so the plan was to have what we were calling sync ads so if you as a brand had an advertisement at 8 p.m. on this show you could buy the same spot on the guide and then you could also have paid reminders via sms let's say you like this particular show and you want to get an sms reminder every week so that reminder would be brought to you by whatever brand was sponsoring the show and then having charles still working at the agency was really good because then he was pitching it to the different to brands the yeah massive conflict of interest but it was working for us uh but again it was a middle class nairobi problem which not so many people shared that problem so and then that morphed into you having an agency with your co-founder yes when charles left and came to join sprout full time which is okay. the name of our agency we basically we had lots of little ideas but to pay the bills would build websites would build uh, mobile apps would build cool little campaigns and then also just find our own little ideas uh, and prototypes is sprout now dead is it like a case of a chicken eating its mother we don't get is or you still have sprout as a business yeah so sprout had a really interesting journey so 3 years in one of the like traditional uh, marketing agencies in Kenya approached to buy us out uh, basically an acquisition and yeah so we went through the you know the valuation and discussion of deals and we we basically did a JV with them just before to see whether it would work yes yeah and i absolutely hated it i had never worked in an agency Charles had and you're an agency as well or is it a it different a type of completely different so there's a culture it clash. was a big cultural clash so we were like nah let's not do this um at that time we had the idea of Ongea already So I was like no nah, let, let's not do this because if you have if they have acquired you you would have had on get through them and it might not have gone the way you wanted to go because the strategic direction and vision would be totally different to be off your hand to be in the hands of this new yeah being a, yeah so what we did was hire like a manager for sprout so sprout is still going keep on. it going yeah it's still going on yeah. and now you have uh, on gear as a separate business it's interesting the journey and a lot of lessons there for a lot of people listening to this um about how you ideated and how you grew it and now it's solving global problem right from africa and now you're raising money for it um but the other interesting bit is which is key is you allow culture to determine your decision about when you were about to sell because a lot of people are saying oh that's a lot of money let me just go for it I assume the, was the money they were offering you good? Yeah, it was decent. <laughs> decent that would make you to say, okay, I can go on holiday for the next one year in Australia. Yeah. But, but you didn't take it and that helps you to be able to build what you're doing now. Let's talk briefly because I know we're running out of time about your view of the Kenyan ecosystem. I've never been to Kenya. It's a place I would like to visit next year and do more recordings like this. Um, but I've read a lot about the ecosystem. It's one of the more mature tech ecosystem, but it's filled with lots of people, uh, a lot of money, lots of interesting people, but there is a lot of discussion around foreign based um founders founding businesses in Kenya and getting more money more disproportionately more than uh, Kenyan founders what's your view on that yeah so I'll, i'll try not to be too political uh but um as i have a term for kenyan born and raised founders i call them native founders um it's frustrating being one of them because we are hugely invested in the problems that we are solving my kenya is our home any problems or things that we solve there are affecting our friends our family we're building our own economy 
So it's frustrating not to be able to get the right resources to be able to solve some of those problems. And seeing foreigners coming in, riding on the story of tech entrepreneurship in Africa, solving problems, uh, being able to get significantly much more funding than full teams it's quite frustrating um and i think i usually say you know like the marketplace is the final arbiter of, of everything some of the startups i think it's too early to tell whether they're going to be able to out execute the local the team natives and i don't really think it's a competition directly between the two but yeah but i think for for them to succeed they really need to see a lot more funding of, of local based teams because the talent is there the experience is there um i think a lot of people see tech as tech in Africa or in Nairobi as having started after Mpesa but that's not the case I mean there's been tech companies for a long time there's been programmers building stuff for a long time what we didn't have was the like the sexy startup mm-hmm. Silicon Valley model but these companies in Kenya that are even just doing integration of you know SAP and other kind of systems and they're easily doing a million dollars in revenue annually so we need to see more maybe local money but even some more of the foreign money that's saying hey these guys are a good strong management team and they're all local and yeah let's give them money but then also the natives need to take control of the story because i think one of the key reasons why some of these uh, founders able to raise money is they've got the networks they can just decide to go to new york and they tell the more. story better they tell the story better they're more aggressive they're more bullish I and they're more confident yes because that's something that we don't have a lot in africa i don't know a lot of kenyans uh, i have a few kenyan friends but i think there may be that cultural bit about just being modest not being bashful which is a good virtue and character to have but in business you need to blow your own horn you mm. need to be confident and almost to the point of arrogance sometimes about your business about what you're doing and i think that's what and americans have in abundance uh, yeah. of telling their stories better and i think nigerians have a bit of that as well yes which that confidence that ego kind of stuff mm. so and i think we need more of that a bit not not to the point of being arrogant and being a total pain in the neck uh, kind of person but confident yeah i think that's definitely key and crucial because i remember there was some one of these accelerator people was asked what's the main difference between you know an american and, and an african is just like confidence you just walk in and <laughs> somebody really believes in themselves and they can you know they be a lot more convincing so i think that's starting to happen um i think there's certainly a lot there's some startups that are starting to look at that as a route to getting their story told in Nairobi specifically there was a bit of a problem with with what i'd say are ecosystem gatekeepers so that's basically if there would be any foreign investors who would come to Nairobi they would kind of go, go to one to person and yes. say who should i talk to and then this guy would just say here are my friends talk to my friends and then you know other people wouldn't get a look in so now you you kind of have to control the narrative and and actually get out there and and get people to know that they're really good strong talented founders uh natives in in Kenya who are who are worth backing so yeah we need to be a lot more bullish i certainly myself i'm trying to be it's culturally we are used to just being very modest uh but yeah and for me as well the additional responsibility of actually executing and being successful because ultimately that's what's going to attract people they're going to look at onge and say hey these guys were fine i might be a returnee as people normally call them but we're a local team the tech is solid the growth is solid and yeah so come and look for other businesses that are like like onge have you considered applying to white combinator on, on similar type of accelerator programs 
Yeah, so one of the strangest things my <laughs> between my co-founder and I is none of us has ever been to an accelerator or an incubator. Uh, we applied to YC last year and uh, we got to the interview stage, but we didn't get in. Um, and then we kind of were encouraged again to apply this year, but we were thinking to focus a bit more on on building the, the product but it's kind of i think one of the advantages of these programs is it gives you access to huge networks it's a great thing for your brand right now probably for Ongea, i'm not too sure i'll make that decision but you know like i would definitely recommend anybody who's, who's maybe earlier stage even though they are they're more advanced companies going to yc but i definitely recommend anybody who's earlier stage to look at these things because the amount of resources and networks that these guys put into you is we don't have any of those in 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 any of them. and it'd be good if some of the i know those uh valley style accelerators the value that they can give you is only there but it would be interesting to see a really good accelerator running in africa I'm, I'm struggling to think of any that's that's really really good i think messed more of an incubator there are a few other things, ones yeah. as well like in nigeria we've got like ventures platform which is mm. accelerating early stage mm. and of course there is messed and there is um there are a few other ones like in i think there's a texter yeah, there's a text here in yeah. South Africa. Mm. Good. I'm going to end this conversation by giving some fire and questions. So just ask four questions. I just need a quick answer to them. Ready? Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're not hard questions. Yeah. What is your biggest business pain point? The biggest pain point is, I don't know, I have so You don't have problem then. <laughs> if you cannot remember your biggest, biggest, biggest business pain point. Right now, right now, to be honest, my biggest pain point is managing our growth and making sure we have the right people is and that team. Is that getting more customers in? Is that your pain it, point? It's right now, it's, it's actually on the sales side. On the sales, so, yeah. okay. So yeah. closing more deals. Yes. Okay. What is your number one growth metric? What do you look at to indicate? that you're growing on a monthly basis yes so for us it's number of activated customers so people who sign up for a trial connect a channel which book are you reading at the moment i'm reading how to solve problems in five days it's about the sprint um yeah it's who about the, the google author? sprint oh shucks i really should remember it. but it's it, top, it, the I, title how to solve large solve. problems in five which business is getting you excited at the moment apart from um yours? apart from mine Oh, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. Just name one. I think one that I've just met this week, they're called iRobotics. They use drones to analyze uh, farmers' crops and, and things like that. It's a, it's a really great business. I think the first time I heard about it, I thought these guys need hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to do the thing. And they're like, no, you know, like... Uh, drones are now commercial. We don't need to use aerial photography to do this. And, and I think they've got a really great team. Fantastic. Trevor, it's great having you on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. And I hope a lot of people will learn as well from what you've said. Thank you. I, I hope I'm able to be of help to someone. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng.
One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month and you want to scale to the next level let's have a chat go to wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us that is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h.co wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us today do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that would be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super-targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audience through this podcast, we would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we can take this further. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E. S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.